Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. This is the poll in every pod edition. Those of you hoping to hear the uh, adorable Australian accent of Emma Graney, uh, you are going to be disappointed today. Uh, instead, you get the flu-ridden voice of myself. Uh, <laughs> I am Keith Jirai, and I'm normally the health reporter, but... Uh, not, in, not in health today. Not in health today, no, no. Serving as the, uh, the guest host of the, the press gallery. It is Friday the 13th today, and not that far from Halloween. And fortunately, uh, to meet the occasion, I have three frightening, disturbing <laughs> guests with me. To my uh, left here is uh, legislature reporter Claire Clancy. Hello, thanks for having me. You're, you're glad to be here. Um, Paula Simons, our city columnist. And I would just like to say that poor Emma is literally flat on her back with, should we say, her medical condition? Uh, we, we, we just leave I, it open to be, we, she, she hit, she's, she's done something horrific to her back. Um, and so we are hoping that if she just lies on the floor and listens to podcasts, she will feel better enough. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This, yeah, yeah. this is a curative. Thera- <laughs> yes, this is ther- therapy for so, her. Hey, That's Emma. Right. Yes. Uh, and our final guest uh, to my right, uh, Graham Thompson, our, our legislature Hello. columnist. Welcome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that Emma's ill, but I'm glad that you are, even though you are ill. <laughs> yes. You could make it. But, yes, but I see, can stand. Yes, that's he can stand and sit upright. So that, th- yeah. that was the criteria. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, thanks, uh, all of you, for being here. Uh, we have a few topics on the agenda today, uh, perhaps some, uh, some new developments in the Serenity case uh, that we didn't get to last week, uh, continued controversy with Alberta's approach to cannabis, uh, and we'll check in on the UCP leadership race and some new polling. And actually, I think that's where we'd like to start. There was a debate last night in Fort McMurray, Brian Jean's hometown, and it sounds like it got a little testy. There's a uh, an article from uh, CBC that I'd like to read just a little bit about, uh, and uh, it says here that uh, Brian Jean accused Jason Kenney's team of lying about him. It says they, uh, they lied about... Um, his Christian values, his position on Bill 6, and lying about other things. Um, and Gene goes on to say that he is a church-going, God-fearing Baptist. So apparently this uh, race has started to come down to, to who has the bigger Christian credentials. But uh, uh, Graham, you also heard uh, there was another controversy potentially from last night's debate. Yeah, on, on that, the first one you mentioned about the, the Christian values, um, you got Gene accusing the Kenny campaign of doing this, but this... Um, allegation came from, I think somebody online had written uh, an article or something accusing Gene. Yep. Uh, I think you've written more about yeah, this. Yes, yeah. I mean, there, there there have been a number of articles from people who are very to the right of center accusing Brian Gene of being, uh, one of them called him a a uh, liberal in sheep's clothing, uh, assaulting him for being too liberal, for being in the pocket of big gay, basically, um, and for not being true to his so-called, you know, Christian values because he's had his photograph taken with a drag queen, because he's had his photograph taken with Marnie Panis, who's a local trans activist, because he has said that he supports GSAs, um, that uh, he's being portrayed as somebody, you know, if you're a Christian, you can't possibly vote for Brian Jean. Now, what's clever for Mr. Kenny is that Mr. Kenny, you know, hasn't got his fingerprints on any of this. These are, you know, right-wing activist groups saying these things, circulating these articles, uh, which gives Kenny this certain degree of plausible deniability. He can say, oh, that wasn't me, but neither has he been rushing out to uh, denounce or distance himself from these articles. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. So uh, last night, uh, Kenny's quote after the debate is uh, basically saying he has no idea what Brian Jean is talking about. <laughs> uh, I know. And the thing is, and it's, it's clever. It's like I've, we've talked about Jeff Calloway, who was in the race, dropped out. Um, and I always called Calloway the attack dog for Brian, for um, for Jason Kenny, because again, this was somebody who was a Kenny supporter in the race and was attacking Brian Jean, and that allows Jason Kenny to float above the fray and say, "I'm running a positive campaign." People can throw mud if they want, but not from me. An issue last night came up in the debate <clears throat> is that this has got the Jean campaign really upset that uh, Kenny appeared to be. On his phone last night in a debate for McMurray, you had Brian Jean on stage at a podium. In the middle was um, Doug Schweitzer, and then you had Jason Kenny. And at times you saw Jason Kenny just standing there when when Brian Jean's responding to an issue, um, apparently on his phone. Now uh, the Jean campaign is furious, and they've gone through the tape several times. This happens probably fifteen or twenty times. Kenny is disrespecting they say, the audience. Hmm. Now, I've put a, a call into the Kenny campaign to find out, well, what was Jason doing? Was he just checking a fact or two? Was he actually texting people? What? And I haven't heard back yet. But so this is an indication, I think, that the anger from the Gene campaign and what they're saying here is that they're under a lot of pressure. Yeah. And th- this that, is showing that, a, a campaign. It yeah. A, a, a campaign that's feeling confident does not tend to get into these these kind of fights. Uh, a campaign that's, that's maybe feeling a lot of pressure, to say the least, with only, what, a few weeks left in the leadership race, um, is starting to complain about a lot of things. Yeah. But can you imagine a world in which Brian Jean, a graduate, I mean, who, who attended high school at a private religious school, who did his first university degrees at a private Christian university, uh, who, you know, is a capital B Baptist. Can you imagine that we've entered a, a some kind of down the wormhole world where Brian Jean has to defend his Christian bona fides. It's just, and it's surreal, and it tells it tells you where the UCP conversation is moving. I mean, they're moving so far to the right, at least as a campaign, that you know both candidates are going after that same block of evangelical Christian voters. That's a sizable block in Alberta, but it sure doesn't represent the majority mm-hmm. of Albertans. And, yeah. you know, I, I think they run a great strategic risk if both of the lead candidates uh, run this, tack this hard to the right. Um, how do you get back center moderates when you actually go to the polls? And I think that's that's the Achilles heel of this party. And so this strategy might help, you know, Kenny or or possibly Gene win the race. But then where do you, where do you go? Because... You've, you've nailed your colors to the vast. Yeah. Well, it's reminiscent of U.S. Republican politics in, yeah, many, very in much. many ways. But, uh, well, yeah. I think and it's a really good point that Paula raises is that this is a race. This is not a public race. And we'll be discussing the public opinion polls in a second. This is a race for among P- UCP members, conservative members, former Wild Rose members. And, and people to whom you've managed to sell UCP exactly. memberships. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so these are conservatives. And maybe in a case, if, if they've been signing up uh, Christian conservatives, right wing, uh, Baptists, whatever, they need those supports to actually win the leadership race. But Paul makes a very good point. What happens after that? Um, can you conv- What's going to happen? Whoever wins is going to try and tack more towards the center 
But of course, the NDP will be bringing this up again and again and again for the next year, saying, no, 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 the core of what these people believe in is too far to the right for the for the average Albertan. Well, and how right. do you tack to the center if you present, present yourself as a party where the grassroots sets the policy? So if you're Jason Kenney and you've gone blink, blink, blink through the whole election saying, oh, I'm not setting policy. I'm going to wait until after the leadership and then we'll let the members set the policy. If you've stacked your membership roles with people who have those very right-wing views on issues about gay rights, abortion, uh, end of life, all those kinds of things, those are going to be the people who set the par- the, the political agenda. So you, unless you, you, you know, unless unless of course you are a complete hypocrite, and all those things that you said were nonsense. Or yeah, well, a hypocrite, <gasps> a politician is a hypocrite. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm shocked, shocked, shocked. I tell you, never unless you're someone like the Preston Manning, the puppet master behind the scenes at conventions, where you make sure the resolutions that are really outrageous never make it to the floor. And and pe- and people, you're right. The thing is, a lot of people who actually are super right wing may, may vote for a leader, but they don't actually turn up at the conventions. And the, the conventions very often can be stacked by uh, leaders by a party to try and sway things more towards where they want to go. But as Danielle Smith could testify, were she here, uh, that is easier said than done. I mean, she was mm-hmm. brought. She was trying to take the party to the center, where I think, frankly, I think. If Danielle Smith hadn't crossed the floor, I think she would have been the one, not Rachel Notley, who formed the next government. But, you know, but she lost control of her own party. She tried to take them to the center. They weren't interested in going. Uh, and the rest is history. But I would think if we are going to see Kenny win this, let's just say he wins it. He's been he's very shrewd. Like he's more shrewd um, at maneuvering people than Danielle Smith. And she lost, you're right, lost control of the party, lost control of the people who actually were trying to move the party to the right or keep it to the right. Um, Jason Kenney, if in fact he wins, has shown himself to be a master at uh, maneuvering people. Yeah. Well, Some might say manipulating. I'm saying maneuvering. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good word. It's potato, a good word. potato. Yes. Well, we're two, we're two weeks away from that, uh, that vote on the leadership uh, so time is getting short and it does seem um, sort of counterintuitive that Brian Jean is in this position that his campaign is reacting so angrily as you say it's a vote among members but province-wide this new polling shows he's still the most popular leader in Alberta right now or the most popular politician in Alberta right now and that polling was interesting there was some some good news for the UCP and some some bad news the uh, the poll said that um, 63% of respondents uh, actually believe that the the union of the progressive conservative and the Wild Rose was a good thing. Although it doesn't uh, say why they thought it was a good that's thing. That's true. That's true. Um, however, it does also say that more than half the respondents agree that uh, the conservatives in Alberta feel entitled to govern. There's this uh, feeling of uh, arrogance uh, and, or too uh, being too ideological or too right wing that definitely came out in this poll. But it may not matter. It, st- it still looks as though the UCP is uh, in a dominant position to, to win the next and just, election. And by the way, it's an Angus Reid poll. Yep. Uh, plus or minus four percentage points, I believe. Yeah, um, it is showing that um, that um, that of the three leadership candidates, it doesn't even it didn't even poll for Doug Schweitzer, the poor guy. Yeah. but it said that um, Brian Jean had. Paula, help me get it in front of me. In front yeah, of us Bri- here. Brian Jean had forty eight percent approval. approval. 
Yep. Yeah, 48, and that Kenny had 38, yep. and that Notley had 29. Yeah, I mean, there's some so. good news and bad news for the UCP. There's, It's only bad news for the NDP there. It, that, I mean, that's the other takeaway from that poll. Yeah, I mean, the, well, the only good news for the NDP here is that 47% of Albertans believe the UCP will be too right-wing. Yes. So, but that, maybe not too too right wing not to vote for though. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it's interesting here because there is a line that says that suggests that some people would like a centrist party, a different other centrist party. Yes. Um, I don't think they're going to get one in time for the next election. It doesn't seem like it does. But you know, in which case, if there's a really hard you know right wing option and the NDP, that is in fact Notley's only path. To hanging on to government, to, you know, maybe to a minority, is if enough people are just squicked out a little bit by how right wing the UCP is, they're, you know, people who would have been progressive conservative voters. But the very bad news for Notley, and here is that four out of four out of forty percent of those who voted for her in the last election now think the NDP is out of touch with what ordinary Albertans need and want. Yeah, and she's at 29% approval, which is... The thing is, another year, year and a half to the next election, a lot can happen, of course. It's interesting, going back to Brian Jean and his reaction to what's happening, uh, his campaign thinks it's good news that Brian Jean is more popular than Jason Kenney. But, of course, this is among the general population who are not taking part in the leadership race. Right. Right. So, you know, but... You're looking at a party that is poised to elect as its leader the less popular guy who then has to go to the general electorate. I mean, it's one thing to win that race by selling the most memberships. It's another thing to then convert that uh, into actual votes at the ballot box from the general public. Claire, what are you sensing down at the legislature? Are, are, is the NDP, are, are they reacting to this anyway? Have you noticed a change in attitude? Um, you know, are, are, is there a fear out there? Do, do, is there a resignation maybe that, hey, you know, we know we're going to lose the next election? I don't think there's a resignation yet. Um, and I think uh, Graham kind of pointed it out in his column about uh, pot. That well, it's so kind of tongue-in-cheek, what yeah, I was saying. Yeah, but not, yes. but uh, I don't think, yeah, there is. But I definitely think they know that they're lacking popularity outside of um, Edmonton, you know? This is a party that, in rural areas, uh, they're very out of touch with people. Um, in Calgary especially, I think, uh, most people at this point, if they were casting a vote, would vote for UCP to lead the province. So, um, so really the NDP at this point need to... Uh, need to convince Albertans that that they're going to really be fiscally responsible because I think that's what people are most concerned about. Um, you know, the carbon tax is slated to be the next big issue, I guess, uh, for the for the election. And um, and then when you have budget after budget coming out saying that the debts, you know, going to be yeah. like seventy billion dollars yeah, by twenty twenty, then and ten billion dollar deficits a year, right? Yeah. Then uh, then you're kind of it, you're not really convincing Albertans that you're going to bring us back to to a place where we were before the oil bust, which will never happen, really. But that's what Albertans want to hear. And it's a message that I think the UCP are more likely to sell at this point. Yeah. And we're seeing a Notley, for example, the premier's in Calgary today. A lot of time in the south, we're seeing the premier in Calgary a lot. And I think the polls, again, it's a year and a half away, but showing Edmonton is still relatively in favor of the NDP is doing really well here. Of course, in Alberta politics, you need to have two out of three things, Edmonton, Calgary, the rest of Alberta. So I can see the NDP thinking, we've got Edmonton still pretty well uh, in hand, and they're doing a lot of campaigning, the premiers in Calgary again today, to try and convince that city to um, 
give the NDP another chance next election. But what's interesting too is that the like the poll about um, the sixty three percent of respondents saying that they agreed in unifying the party. Uh, what Paula was saying before is, I think, a really interesting point. If uh, if the UCP fail to actually unify the right and they end up uh, turning into this extremely right-wing party, then I do think Albertans will will get a bit scared and then maybe they won't be as willing to cast a vote for Kenny or Gene if he wins. But really, the, the mood in Calgary is fascinating because when we began this municipal election cycle, I never would have thought that Nahed Nenshi would be in trouble. Uh, now, we've had weird conflicting polls out of Calgary that don't seem to... Uh, to make sense taken in the aggregate. But there's no doubt that Nenshi is in tough. And I mean, you remember how hugely popular he was when he won re-election three, uh, four years ago, pardon me. Um, So, you know, Calgarians have, I mean, in a way that I think in in Edmonton is maybe hard to imagine, they've really taken it in the teeth the last few years through the economic downturn. If they're about to turf Nenshi for Bill Smith, the former conservative uh, former progressive conservative party president who was frankly a disaster as conservative party president i mean it was on on his watch that the party basically blew itself up um the redford years yeah yeah, you know um and smith has not run what you'd call a very stellar campaign in calgary Uh, but if people are just mad uh and they just want to lash out and you know punish somebody for what they're going through uh it's going to be very, very, very hard for Notley to hang on to the to the several seats that she won in Calgary. And you look at uh, what happened a few weeks ago. Last week, um, Karen McPherson, NDP MLA, actually yeah. left the NDP caucus. Yeah, that's right. Is, is now an independent. And yeah. people do not normally leave government caucuses unless there's something going on that's not, not good. And I think that, um, uh, Paula, you're right. The provincial politicians watch the civic elections really carefully to find out where, where the trends are heading. Are people coming out, out of the blue to win? Are the incumbents being kicked out? Uh, people moving more to the right or the left? So people do watch the civic elections to see what's actually going to happen provincially. And the next election is only a year, a year and a, well, a, year and a half away provincially. So um, even though things happen at a civic level, people will be reading into it what may be... Um, a weather vane uh, for the future. What the NDP, I think, really need are movement on a pipeline, and that, that would really give them a chance, I think, in the next election. Yeah, I mean, job numbers are already showing signs of recovery. The latest job numbers this week showed an increase. I mean, it's a weird metric. It's an increase in job vacancies. Mm. So these are jobs that are not being filled, um, which is a metric that shows that, oh, there are, you know, we need more people in those jobs. So, you know, if line three construction is, you know, it's already begun, but if it starts, you know, f- employing a lot of people, if they get Trans Mountain uh, into the ground, then it'll help. But the people who hate the NDP um, wouldn't give Notley credit for any of those things anyway. So if, if there's a general uptick in oil prices and a general uptick in employment, people might feel happier. But I'd, the people who have a great grudge against the Rachel Notley NDP government are not going to be swayed by that, alas, right, right. For, for Notley. Well, Claire, you mentioned fiscal responsibility. That That is an issue for a lot of people right now, will be an issue, maybe the top issue in the next election. And that kind of leads us to this uh, next topic on cannabis. Uh, and Graham, you had an interesting column this week related to fiscal responsibility and cannabis and the plan potentially for selling cannabis in Alberta. What what happened there? Um, actually, the government's announced, well, not announced, I've heard from people in the government that they're going to actually bring in the bill this fall. 
So the question was, would they wait until the spring to bring it in? Because they have until July as a deadline to get the um, the laws in place provincially because the federal government's announced, of course, July 1st next year. Um, people can uh, have cannabis, uh, possess cannabis uh, for recreational use. So the Alberta government's kind of rushing through to try and get something done. Be coming out this fall. We don't know the details of it. What we, we saw the, the rough framework um, last week. They're putting it out for consultation um, to see what people think of it. Uh, but one of the big questions is going to be, um, will they allow sales um, through private um, stores or government-run Right. Um, That's the big outlets. question. Yeah. And it's a big question, of course. And uh, Ontario, because they have a, the Ontario Liquor Control Board, they have actual stores there that sell liquor. Um, they're going to do it through the liquor, um, well, liquor stores, at least through that agency. Whereas in Alberta, the question is, um, do we just do it like we do for alcohol here and not sell it privately through privately run stores? So this is a big issue for the government because it happens that the likely, if it is done through a, a government run uh, chain of stores, they'll be staffed by members of the Alberta Union of Provincial Employees. That's right. the biggest union in, in the province. And next week, the AUP happens to have its annual conference. And I've been told... W- w- that would you look at that? Yeah. yeah. Well, and I've been told by sources, good sources, that that they will actually be bringing on the floor uh, an emergency resolution um, to to debate the idea of should we support the idea of government-run stores. Which you would think they will support. You'd think they would because it'd probably be a lot more AUPE members, and if this is the case, if they actually support it, it becomes an issue for the government because the NDP government wants union support, and they'll be saying, you know, help us out here. And this is going to be another problem for the NDP uh, moving forward. If they do actually go with government-run stores, it will appear they're just uh, playing to their base, the unionized base, and that's going to drive the conservatives crazy again. You know, Uh, and I think they they run a danger too because there are all kinds of mom-and-pop head shops, if you can call them that, um, stores that are, are pot stores in all but, you know, Really? You can get many different Where? things that are a lot like that. I, I, go on. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I think they don't want to be in a position either because those businesses, um, I talked a couple of weeks ago to the woman who runs the Jupiter uh, store on uh, White Avenue. They're franchising. They want to have a chain of these mom I, and pop pot shops. Um I called them hemporiums. Hemporiums, yeah. They want a chain of hemporiums, and they're selling franchise rights. And so it it isn't just a question of starting from zero and setting up government stores. You would actually be, I think, kicking in the teeth a lot of people who have built their business plans on the assumption that there will be private shops. And I'm not sure that private shops aren't the best way for all kinds of public policy reasons. Uh, You know, it, it would be sort of weird you could get liquor anywhere, but marijuana only from a government-run mm-hmm. uh, agency. You know, and does that make it look as though then the government is indemnifying the product and giving social license to its use? I don't know. I think it's. I think you come at it with cleaner hands if you do leave it to the private sector. It almost sounds though like a no-win situation for the NDP because if they decide to go the private route, then like a massive amount of their base will be really upset about lack of union involvement. Well, you know what? I think I think Rachel Notley mustn't make the mis- you know, Bob Ray 
got into this um, situation with the unions in Ontario when he was the NDP premier. And the unions basically undercut him and brought him down, and they ended up with Mike Harris. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, I understand that, you know, Gil McGowan and the AUPE would dearly like to have uh, union people with union wages and benefits running uh, cannabis outlets. Uh, I think Rachel Notley has to have the gumption to say, just as she said to the national NDP on pipelines, that's not the way we're going to do things. Um, I'm the premier. I'm I'm the one who who brought us to this point and not to back down. And it's easier in Alberta almost because it's another controlled substance. And so then you can kind of look at it as just another offshoot of selling liquor. I, I agree with Paul in terms of, um, sorry, Claire. Oh, no. I, I agree with Paul in the sense that make it private. But I was saying it tongue in cheek in my column. If they do make it, publicly run government stores, then that means the NDP knows they will lose the next election. And they're doing this just to mess with the UCP right, coming yeah. in. <laughs> they have a whole bunch of government, new unionized workers across the province selling pot. Right, that the UCP would then have to fire. Exactly. And then and then change the whole thing, turn it upside down and make it private, and then have a huge fight on his hand with uh, a lot of unions. So I was being sort of tongue-in-cheek. People took me literally, and that's always a problem, if you're being sort of sarcastic or tongue-in-cheek. Well, I mean, I... Th- I, th- I I can understand why, because I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's going to be a fascinating issue. So that's coming this fall. That's that's what you. Well, heard. I was told yes by government source that they will be bringing in that bill on cannabis this fall. Now they've got to right now, which is c- smart. I mean, it would be crazy to bring it in the spring if if it becomes legal July exactly, first. Because, they need time. Because the thing is, like, they, they've opened up the consultation period until the 27th of October. The Friday, and then the following Monday is when the fall sitting starts. All right. Okay. Uh, well, uh, I'd like to turn uh, briefly just to, to one other topic, which is uh, the Serenity case. Uh, there was some developments last week that we did not get to, and Paula, you were you were on top of this. Yes, because the news broke just after we came out of the studio last Friday uh, that the RCMP were going to be laying charges, um, and it took us a time to find out that the charge in question was failing to provide the necessaries of life. So not uh, not a different charge, but that one. Now, uh, what was really peculiar, we all trooped off to K Division, the Mountie headquarters, and we spoke, we spoke not just to the RCMP, but also to the Assistant Deputy Minister of Justice, who was the head of Crown Prosecution Services, which is unusual. And they explained to us that there was one joint charge of failing to provide the necessaries of life that's been brought against uh, the couple who were Serenity's guardians. We all wrote our stories in our columns. And at 8.30 that night, after everybody had gone to bed and the paper was practically ready to print, uh, and when we couldn't question anybody, the RCMP put out this oops press release in which they said, oh, did we forget to mention? that there, the injuries that caused Serenity's death were non-criminal. Mm. And the charge of failing to provide the necessaries of life is not in relation to her death, but only in relation to the alleged abuse she suffered while she was alive. Wow. And I was very unhappy. Yeah, uh, I imagine so. Before we came into the studio, Sarah cautioned me to choose my words carefully because we do not wish to uh, defame anyone nor to prejudice a fair trial for anyone. But... I can tell you, having read firsthand Serenity's medical reports, I was surprised by the decision to lay charges only in relation to her life and not in relation to her death. 
Intriguingly enough, um, Claire and I have both been pushing for this. Uh, the RCMP and the Crown will not release her cause of death. Oh. And uh, I heard yesterday from Serenity's mother, uh, who said that she's also extremely frustrated because the, the RCMP have told her that Serenity's death was non-criminal, but they won't even tell her what the cause of death is. She's never been allowed to see a copy of the autopsy report herself. Hmm. I think what's a little bit disturbing about this as well is that now... Um, because the matter is before the courts, we're also in a situation where there's an excuse for everybody to no longer comment about anything going on. And that's very troubling because we're in the middle of a child intervention panel. We're trying to get more answers about what's been going wrong in the welfare, child welfare system. And, and you know, as reporters, every time you're asking ministerial officials for information and the answer is, well, it's before the courts, we can't discuss it. Um, it's just yet another roadblock on trying to find out what exactly went wrong. And and that's the other thing. I mean, uh, as Claire reported this week, it, and, it, and this makes perfect legal sense, they won't have a fatality inquiry now until after all the criminal matters are wrapped up. And fair enough, you don't want a fatality inquiry in advance of a trial because that prejudices the accused's right to a fair hearing. On the other hand, the longer we put off the fatality inquiry, which would look into not just how she died, but how she came to be placed in this home, the whole, the whole series of the the cascading tragedy of circumstances that that led to the situation that led to her death uh, will put off accountability for the ministry and the system that failed her so catastrophically. Uh, we won't we won't get answers to that uh, for that much later. Yeah, it's it's about as tragic and frustrating a case as you can get. It's just uh, there doesn't seem to be any. Uh, any relief for anyone, uh, although, you know, perhaps these charges will, will lead somewhere. But, but you know, it's, it's very difficult. This is a cold case. This child died more than three years ago. Uh, this case has been, has been handled in a most peculiar fashion from start to finish. And I don't know how the Crown could have made out other charges given the length of time and the fact that many of the witnesses were children. Uh, three years after the fact, it's very difficult to prove what happened. What you can say is there's a lot, there's lots of evidence to be adjudicated about the way the child had been cared for in the months leading up to her death. Yes. Well, let's, uh, let's get to uh, something more positive, and that's our, our usual feature to end the podcast. Good stuff from the gallery. Uh, let's start with Claire. What have you got today? Sure. I'll recommend a podcast, as I often do. Um, one that I... <laughs> were you going to say something? No, no. I was going to say Emma can listen to that one, too, while she's yeah. lying on the floor. I actually sent Emma a list of 10 of my favorite podcasts oh, okay. right away, and she's been loving them. Um, but no, uh, there's a great uh, series called Embedded, and it's from NPR with Kelly McEvers, but... Um, their new season just started a week ago, and what they're doing is each episode is delving into uh, Trump or an advisor and kind of how they ended up in the White House and what they were doing beforehand. And it's been really fascinating. The first episode, uh, which I would highly recommend, is about The Apprentice and how it created this celebrity around Trump and then how it helped to lead him into the White House. So, sounds quite intriguing. Okay, Paula, what about you? I'm going to suggest a couple of things in case we need a laugh. First of all, uh, I want to suggest a really deliciously silly thing that our uh, colleague Tristan Hopper wrote in the National Post evaluating the sex appeal of Andrew Scheer, uh, the conservative federal leader, as opposed to the sex appeal of uh, Jack Meet Singh or 
uh, Justin Trudeau. It's written tongue-in-cheek. It's extremely funny. Conrad Black did not like the joke um, and took to Twitter <laughs> to express his dismay at the publication of this article. So if nothing else, you should read it to annoy <laughs> Mr. Black. Um, but also this week, the CBC made official what I'd heard rumored for months, which is that they have canceled the Irrelevant show, which is um, which was CBC Edmonton's flagship national production, a great comedy show produced by Peter Brown. Uh, now, the, the Irrelevant show prided itself on being resolutely apolitical, you know, not, not uh, social satire rather than political satire, but I think in an act of political solidarity with the fine actors and creators of this show, you should go online and listen to the Irrelevant show podcasts while you still can. Right. I'm going to uh, recommend something that's a bit of a shameless plug, and that's uh, the Edmonton Journal's uh, civic election coverage. Uh, if you just go to our website and you click on the link on the city election trail, there's some great stuff there. We have coverage from all the wards, the uh, the forums that have happened in the past. Janet French has a great feature uh, today on uh, the school board elections. Uh, Elise has done a good job of compiling survey results. There's one today on uh, how candidates feel about residential uh, speed limits. There's just a lot of good stuff. So if you're having trouble deciding who to vote for, this is your best resource. Uh, go to the Edmonton Journal's uh, civic election coverage. Graham. Uh, quickly, last week I mentioned uh, a book, a new one called Firestorm by Ed or Edward Struzik, former journal reporter who's gone on to bigger and better things. He's written numerous books, won all kinds of awards. I hadn't actually read the book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're going you're, you're to use it twice? I read the book. It is amazingly good. <laughs> the thing I'm, I actually wrote a review of it. The thing about the book, it's not you know, a typical climate change book. You know where we got us. Um, it's about wildfires, like the Fort McMurray fire. How we'll see more of those as the climate warms. And very, very topical this week with everything in, in Santa California. Rosa. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, um, he's not. It's not a book about oh, we got to stop driving our cars and you know walk to work. Um, He's saying, look, the climate is warming, whether you believe it's natural or man-made or whatever, it's a, re- it's a reality. And he's talking about just how we got to deal with it. And it's really interesting. It's not just fires. Um, we got fires like in North America. He mentions that Libby, Montana, it had major fires a century ago. Um, and was, but the problem is they had a lot of asbestos mining in the last century. <laughs> mm. So that forest is full of asbestos. Oh, great. And um, it, in fact, the experts are so convinced. Doesn't that make it fireproof? Well, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> the fact is, of course, the asbestos, when the trees burn, the asbestos is not going to get burned. It will go into the atmosphere. Right. And in fact, the experts are so convinced there will be a fire there. They've actually already named it. Um, They've actually given a number to it. I think it's called Operable Unit 3. And firefighters have said they're not going to fight it because of the asbestos in in the atmosphere. So Ed is talking about it's not just fires. It's fires be burning all kinds of things um, that could be really dangerous. Chernobyl, he visited Chernobyl. Um, They've had a few fires out there, and it's actually put more of the... um, the radiation back into the atmosphere. Oh, great. So he's talking about uh, the major problems, but he, he's also an optimist. He thinks that we, you know, we, we can and we will actually find ways to fight these fires. But it's a really well-done book. He's an excellent writer, and he's written a, an absolutely wonderful book I it's still called Firestorm. I still think it is cheating to plug the same book twice. <laughs> yeah, but it's he so good. <laughs> you know something? I'll do it again next week. 
We're gonna have to spite you. It's actually a really good book. We're gonna have to question all of his good stuff from the gallery at this point, whether he's actually read the material (laughs) he's promoting. But uh, anyway, Um, uh, thanks uh, all of you for joining me, uh, and thanks also to Sean Butts, our uh, videographer, who's been recording an an excerpt, and we'll put it on the Edmonton Journal's website. Uh, Emma, please get better soon, and hopefully she'll be back in the chair next week. Uh, You can find this episode in an archive of the 200 past editions on the website at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion. You can also listen to us on SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn Radio. And I understand we have some new ways to get the podcast as well on Google Play and something called Stitcher. I don't... Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what the kids are listening to. All right. Uh, Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, it's good. I can tell you. I can tell you're a fan. Uh, And please remember, we do have a civic election and civil elections happening all around the province on Monday, so make sure you get out and vote. We'll be back next week on the Press Gallery.